0: I we'll invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10. Before we jump into our several month series in the book of Galatians, uh, last Sunday and this Sunday we're kind of doing single studies on aspects of church life. Today we're considering habits of grace, or you might call it gospel gifts and Christian rhythms. In other words, because of the gifts that Christ gives us in the gospel there are certain rhythms habits that we build into our lives in response to Jesus and what he has done in this morning as we walk through this passage in Hebrews 10 verses 19 through 25 we'll see this central idea because of God's grace in Christ we should lean into Christ the gospel and our local church because of Jesus and what he's done we should lean into Christ his gospel and our local church if you have your Bible there with you invite you to look follow along as I read aloud Hebrews 10 19 through 25 therefore brothers since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It was a few days before Christmas, I saw a text pop up on my phone from a member at our former congregation, and she reached out and said, please pray for my husband. He's experiencing symptoms like he experienced several years ago. You see, the year we arrived in this congregation, this man, a well known leader in this church, began experiencing a tingling sensation in his arm, then sweats and chest pain. As he began talking through with his wife, they took him to the doctor, to the emergency room, and when he arrived there, he learned he had had a heart attack. And this led to quadruple bypass surgery and weeks and then months of recovery and here we were six and a half years later and the man began experiencing similar symptoms and as he began observing these and for some time he kept them to himself you know we men are stubborn fools but after communicating to his wife she said you gotta go took him to the hospital and began running a series of tests. Well, what is the link between this sensation in an arm and our heart? You know, you could have a tingling sensation in your arm, and it could could be because you have a tight rubber band around your wrist. that's coming off circulation. Or it could be a sign that something is seriously wrong. Ever have this uh, with your kids? You're watching them, and they're all wrestling on the floor. Everyone's laughing. But you sense as the laughter continues, the emotion increases along with the fun. And there's coming a tipping point, and you know someone's going to get hurt, and when someone gets hurt, someone gets mad. And so you, as a wise parent, rather than breaking up a fight, decide to intervene in the front side say, let's stop this where we are while we're all ahead. Or maybe your kids get a little older, and you're watching them walk through life, and you observe the company that they keep, and you observe the choices that their friends are making, and you're watching this, and you try to warn them. If you head down this path, it leads to heartbreak, to destruction. You see, what we're doing in all of these instances, whether it's physical, medical, whether it's rearing children, whether it's seeking to train our older children, is we're trying to observe symptoms that communicate that there is a problem. And the question for us as a church is, what are signs in our lives that can communicate to us personally, or to us as a church, that we could be headed for a problem? Hebrews 10 is written to a church in trouble. You see, in this church, they're experiencing professing Christians with low commitment. See, they're people who have had experience with the gospel, who profess faith in Christ, and if they don't demonstrate consistent faithfulness in their personal life or in their communal Christian life. But not only this, There's evidence that there are people who actually walk away from the faith. People who have tasted what it means to hear the gospel. To experience life as a part of a visible community of faith. And yet not experience the transforming power of the gospel in their own hearts. They walk away. As people who have given some evidence but no longer profess faith in Christ. So how... How is it that in the face of such trouble, we address these symptoms, these threats, these signs that could communicate there is a problem? How do we protect one another? How do we care for souls in the church? And this passage indicates to us that it's really a two-step process. And the first step is to see what God has given us in Jesus Christ. You see, if we don't understand the gospel, if we don't understand who Jesus is, we can't walk with Jesus. But then the second response to this is this. So we observe the gifts we have been given, and by faith we receive them. But secondly, we recognize there are responsibilities that come through, come with this. There's a response to the gospel, response of walking with Christ. Response of committing daily, weekly to fresh communion with Jesus, living in light of what Christ has done for us. So, first, let's consider together the gifts that God has given us in the gospel. You see, well, we arrived in verse 19 and we kind of jumped into the middle of a conversation with this church, with these believers. You see, this therefore is a response to everything that has come before in the first nine and a half chapters. Of Hebrews. Because of who Jesus is, because of what he has done, here we go. You understand who Jesus is, and you live in light of that, but if you do not understand this, you can't do the rest. You can't offer a life pleasing to God apart from Jesus Christ. And Hebrews begins by showing us how far superior, Jesus Christ is to every other being in the universe. It doesn't matter what image you create or what person you study. Jesus, Hebrews tells us, is better than the prophets. Moses, Elijah, Daniel, Jesus Christ is better. Jesus better than Moses, the great leader who leads God's people out of Israel, the great redemptive act in the old covenants the exodus of God's people, crossing the Red Sea, receiving the, Mount, the covenant at Mount Sinai. Jesus Christ is better. But not only is Jesus better than human beings, he's better even than the angels, these celestial beings. Jesus Christ is an eternal king, superior to every other being. If you were to track back and just glance a few verses before this, in the beginning of Hebrews 10, you'd see these words for since the law has but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. I want us to pause for a moment and think about this picture, this metaphor that Hebrews 10 paints for us here. Now I brought with me, it's not a real shadow. You can see a few shadows here, but I brought with me a profile. Now, I don't know if you can see or recognize who the person in this profile is, but it's allegedly me. So this is a sketch of me from the side. Now, if you know me well, and you, I don't know, know—we're walking through some store in Charleston, and you came across this profile, you might think, that looks like someone I know. And in a sense, this resembles the reality. And so you look at this, and it hints at this. But can this speak? Can this move? Can this touch? No, because the shadow, though it resembles the reality, isn't as great as the real thing. So the law, the old covenant, hints at the coming reality. It gives us the shadowy outline of the true thing. It describes for us what we are going to receive, and it prepares us for the real thing. But brothers and sisters, the shadow can never compare to the real thing. In Christ, the reality comes to bear. So God takes all that Jesus Christ has done and writes it in a new covenant. A new covenant is not like The Old is superior in every way, just like Christ is superior to every other being. You see, the success of the Old Covenant is dependent upon our obedience. And we can never obey like Christ obeyed. But in the New Covenant is guaranteed by the success of Jesus himself. It's not like the Old covenant. And by Jesus' success, he brings with him all of us who receive him by faith. And we enter into this new covenant. And so the writer highlights now two gifts that we receive through this covenant. And the first is confident access. We sang just a little while ago, bold I approach. Well, September 15th of this year, Jewish people will celebrate together. Yom Kippur, which for millennia now has been observed as the Day of Atonement. This day, the Day of Atonement, of all the holy days on the Jewish calendar, is the most sacred. Faithful, committed Jews celebrate this day with fasting and prayer. It's the Christmas and Easter all rolled into one on the Jewish calendar. And even, like professing Christians, on this day, the Jews who have spent the year wandering away show up at synagogue, the christers, if you will, show up on the Day of Atonement, even if they don't show up the other days of the year. Well, Where does this idea come from? Leviticus chapter 16 establishes the Day of Atonement on the 10th day of the seventh month. And since that time, on this day, the high priest enters the holy place, and he makes a sacrificial offering for the sins of the people. But it's not a single sacrifice, it's even in this moment a triple sacrifice. You see, he offers first a bull for himself, recognizing that he himself is a sinner and needs cleansing. Then he offers a goat for the sins of the people. He prays over this goat confesses the sins of the people for the people, intercedes for them and slays and slaughters this goat there for sacrifice. But a third goat he sends out into the wilderness, the scapegoat. This one sent out the camp bearing the sins of the nation. In this holy place, the Lord himself dwells in a cloud, the Spirit of God there. You see, the high priest entrance into this place, into this moment, is so sacred that preparation is key. He can't walk in glibly. He can't walk in fearlessly. He must enter this moment with fear, trembling, and reverence because he is about to come to the God of the universe, the most holy one. He goes through strenuous cleansing and preparation, washing not just himself but all of his garments down to his underwear to be sure he's ready. To enter the presence of the living God is a fearsome thing. I mean, why does the priest go through all of this careful preparation? Leviticus 16 says it's so that he may not die. You see, for an unholy being to come into the presence of a holy God would be to be struck dead. So, why is this day, Yom Kippur, such a big deal? Because the Day of Atonement is the single day, the one day of the year, when the holiest Jew could dare for a few moments after careful preparation to enter the presence of God to offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people in God's presence. He must wash himself before and after this visit. So, when verse 19 says, we have confidence to enter the presence of God, this is unbelievable. We, brothers and sisters, can confidently enter the presence of God. And there are two things that open this access to us. Verse 19, we can enter by the blood of Jesus. Verse 20, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. Now, we don't think of sacrifices this way, but we know what it means to carefully prepare yourself to enter a room. Now, no matter what you think of COVID and your relative risk to the disease, We recognize that when you work in a COVID ward where you're guaranteed to be surrounded by people infected with this disease, it requires a different level of preparation. A year ago, no one knew what PPE was. Personal protective equipment. You work in the infectious disease ward, you don't just throw on a mask, you throw on a hazmat suit. You can't touch the stuff. You don't want to even encounter it. So there's a door, sealed, separating contagion, health. And in the temple, like that door, there was a curtain separating the holy place from the rest of the temple. This curtain acts not only as a barrier, but also as a shield protecting God's people. God's presence is so overwhelming that to encounter the presence of the holy God without personal protective equipment would be to be struck dead. So when Matthew records the death of Christ, he comments that when Jesus died, the veil of the temple was torn into, from top to bottom. Curtain torn in two, dead are raised to life. Finished the victory cry. Jesus' body and blood tore down the barrier separating us from the infinitely holy creator god we can now through christ enter god's presence boldly we can strip off the protective equipment in christ and run into the presence of the creator god this is unbelievable you might be sitting here wondering if you reflect with reality on yourself how an unholy unrighteous person could enter the presence of a holy God. How someone like you who's looked at the things that you've looked at, who's thought the things that you've thought, who's said the things that you've said, whose broken relationships like you've broken relationships could enter this presence. But you could have the worst personal history, the worst family history, the worst imagined history, and enter the presence of God perfectly confidently through Christ. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done in Christ. You can boldly enter the presence of God. In the Old Covenant, you could be the most holy person. The person who gave the most attention to detail. The person who devoted the most of himself to worshiping this God and fear entering his presence. But in the new covenant, the least holy person in Christ can walk confidently into the presence of God. Today, we're going to observe together the Lord's Supper. When I was growing up, we had almost a painfully introspective way of approaching the table of the Lord. And there's an aspect of this which is good. 1 Corinthians 11 tells us not to take this meal in an unworthy manner, but to approach God in Christ, willingly repenting of our sin. But what does the new covenant declare to be true? It says that the blood of Jesus, the cup, and the body of Jesus, the bread, declare that we can walk confidently into God's presence. So in the Lord's Supper, there is for us certainly a disposition that submits itself to the conviction of God's Spirit about our sin. But there is also in the new covenant a tone that isn't depression, it isn't introspection, it's celebration of confident access to God. We come to God boldly and confidently. We take the body and blood of Jesus in the Lord's Supper as those who have the right to access God's presence, not because we are good, not because we bring anything to this table, but because the sacrifice of Jesus is infinitely superior to every other sacrifice. We can confidently access God's presence. Secondly, we have a compassionate Advocate, verse 21, a great priest over the house of God. Now, the priesthood of Christ is a central theme in the book of Hebrews, and if you were to track back several chapters to Hebrews chapter 4, the writer links for us the ministry of Christ with our access to God, Hebrews four fifteen: for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. You see, we can confidently enter God's presence because we have a constant, compassionate advocate at the right hand of the Father. I mean, think back for a minute to the day of atonement. What's the high priest's job? I mean, literally to offer a sacrifice, but ultimately it's to go between God and the people. It's to intercede. This sacrifice is a ministry of intercession. He represents the needs of the people to God, and he offers a sacrifice on their behalf. So there's this extra layer of confidence. The sacrifice has been offered, and we have a great priest. We can go to God knowing that we have the most powerful advocate in the universe going with us. If you have kids, I know you've had this experience. One of them has an idea. But they know mom and dad aren't very likely to like this idea. So they take with them their sibling. The sibling is there to plead for them. To plead on their behalf, to act as their advocate. Can we please? Now I'm not gonna tell you who they are, but in our house we have very good advocates. We have the one coming alongside the other. Please, please, please. Some are good, some are bad. You find yourself in an earthly court of law, standing before a judge, you want the best advocate by your side. You want someone standing there who can say, oh no, judge, there's another way to look at this, to declare on your behalf that you should not be condemned. And brothers and sisters, we have the most compassionate, the most infinitely perfect advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, pleading on our behalf for the throne of God. Our sin says guilty, and Jesus says, Oh, oh, no, God, I bear the penalty for that sin. Our heart condemns us, and Christ declares us righteous. It's not a verdict we deserve. It's not a verdict we can earn. But in Christ, we have the most compassionate advocate. And the difference is, in a court of law, unless he's your dad or your brother, it's that guy's job. You're paying that man or that woman to represent you. But in this throne room, Jesus does it, and he pays the price. He pays the penalty for our sin, and he's like, yeah, and don't punish him for it unbelievable. Hebrews 3 tells us that not only is Jesus a priest, he's God's son, and he rules God's house. And when God's son comes to the Father, the Father listens to his son. And Hebrews 2 tells us that not only is he God's son, we are Jesus' brothers and sisters. So he comes, and and he's like this lawyer, but he's like our brother, bringing us with him and saying, it's okay, God, I have this. So when we go to the Father, we take our big brother, Jesus, with us. First, God says, you can confidently enter my presence through Christ. And then he says, Jesus says, I'll go with you. Brothers and sisters, we can confidently access God's presence. Now, we tend to think of God too lightly. Like, God doesn't take our sin seriously. But God takes our sin so seriously that his own son died. To pay the price for our sin. Our sin in the face of a living, holy God is no light thing. So we think of God too lightly, but on the other hand, we think of God too distantly. Like a God who thinks that way about our sin couldn't care about us. But Hebrews tells us this is a lie, it's just the opposite. Our sin is a really, really big deal. But God also cares about us personally to the point of sending His Son to bear the penalty for our sin. And then as we perhaps hesitantly walk into the throne room, His Son walks alongside us to declare to us, you can go here. You can enter the presence of this holy God. So there is a wonderful promise here. But there is also a sobering warning. Because in Christ... Anyone can confidently enter the presence of this king. But without Christ, no one can enter the presence of the holy God. We're like that goat, the one on whom the sins are symbolically placed, and he's sent outside the camp, sent beyond the presence of God's favor the only way to access God's presence and God's favor is to turn from your sin. You can't enter that presence with your sin. If you're like that goat, you get sent out. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. But if that sin, you don't enter God's presence bearing your sin, it's been placed on Christ, you enter your God's presence in Christ, God says, welcome, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter the joy of your Lord. If you trust the death, the sacrifice of Christ in your behalf, if you turn from your sin, if you trust Christ, you can confidently enter God's presence. But to attempt to enter that throne room without Christ is certain death. Would you turn from your sin and trust Christ today? So, Christ gives us competent access. He is our compassionate advocate, and he asks for us some responsibilities, some rhythms in response to what he has done, gospel habits. And this passage outlines three primary responsibilities in light of what Jesus has done. And this flows from what Jesus has done to what we must do. We don't do these things to earn access. We do these in response to the access we've already been given. But we can't separate the two, but the first thing he says is, because of Christ, we should draw near to God. Verse 22, draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Now, some people approach the Christian life like this. We got our church life, and then we got the rest of our life. We got the in front of preacher life, and we got the rest of our life. But what we see here is that for the true Christian, there is no separation between Sunday morning and the rest of the week. It's a life that is a sacrifice to God. So it's absolutely essential to worship with God's people. But if we gather here to make mom and dad happy or grandma happy, it's a farce apart from sincere devotion to Christ. So we completely trust Christ's work and then walk, what he says, in the full assurance of faith by devoting every part of ourselves to him. Then in verse 22, our hearts sprinkled clean, our bodies washed with pure water. So when we become a Christian, the blood of Christ cleanses our hearts from sin, internal cleansing. And we're baptized in response to this, this external sign of an internal reality. Baptism is an outward sign of something that's taking place inside us. It represents something that has happened. So, draw near to God. How do we do this? Well, sometimes as Christians, we look for what will lead to immediate success when the answer is really simple and right in front of us. We read God's word. We talk to God through prayer. I mean, from the very first days of the church, this is how it's worked. Word, prayer, word, prayer, word, prayer. Now, if you have an infant, and you've tried to teach an infant to eat, you actually have to teach children how to eat. You know, like the first time you stick a little food, a baby food, in that child's mouth. There's more of it on their chin. It's like you're trying to force food in, but as much as you're forcing it in, it's coming right out. And that's okay, because that, it's, it's a baby. Like the, the, the child can't consume much food. But if you have a 14-year-old who eats that way, You know, something's not right. There's something going on here that that we need to address. Or perhaps this child has a, a, a condition given by our creator God that doesn't allow him to eat this way. But what you want is to be able to consume food. We feed on God's word. And if we just consume little bits, we'll stay shriveled, little up, infant Christians. But if we feed on the word we grow, we grow strong in the gospel, we grow strong in Christ. So brothers and sisters, how is it in 2021 that you will feed your soul with the word of God? We are not engaged in a battle with flesh and blood, but with principalities the powers, the spiritual forces of darkness in this world, and we enter this as puny, shriveled up, malnourished wimps. And wonder why it is that we're reeling so hard. We're not nourished. It's it's, it's like people who have just starved themselves spiritually, trying to fight a visceral, muscular, prepared warrior. It's no contest. Brothers and sisters, perhaps it looks like this. During the next week, I will spend 20 minutes reading my Bible and talking to the Lord this day, this time. If you do not plan it, it will not happen. Draw near to God. Secondly, he tells us we're to hold fast to the gospel. Hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Now, when you first become a Christian, it's easy to imagine that everyone who professes faith in Christ makes it in Christ to the end, but sadly, that's just not the case. Many of us know people who once professed faith in Jesus but have turned their back on their faith sometimes we come right out and reject jesus but in the bible belt we do it a little more politely you know atheist isn't that cool here so we do the bless your heart lord have mercies we do it a little nicer so we don't reject it outright but we don't commit ourselves to walking faithfully with jesus we don't submit regularly to his word we don't commit in faithful membership and service to a local church jesus is our lucky charm not our way of life so we can reject jesus explicitly or implicitly but god's word offers no assurance to professing believers who don't live their life walking with jesus there is no you can search a scripture and look for the casual christian you cannot find one they're not christians So where does the fuel for this faithful perseverance come from? Look at the end of verse 23. He who promised is faithful. God always keeps his promises. God promised he would send Jesus to die in our place. Promise fulfilled. God promised Jesus would rise from the dead. Promise fulfilled. God promises Jesus is coming back. That he will set everything right. Promise fulfilled. Or as good as fulfilled. And there are a host of other promises, and God is keeping all of these promises. It is impossible, Hebrews 6 tells us, for God to lie. So we can rest in the faithfulness of God who keeps his promises. And the third thing that the writer tells us is to lean into our local church community. So what we've got to do is pretty simple. Stay close to God, hold on to the gospel, Well, how do we do this? Verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. Now, we encourage one another in our walk with Christ by gathering together. I mean, we don't do this just to meet, just to have an appointment on our calendar. We meet for the purpose of pushing one another, encouraging one another toward love and good works. What's a habit? A habit is something you do automatically. You get up, put your feet on the floor. But a habit can also be something you don't do. And the writer says these people are in the habit, some people are, of not meeting together. So one habit is you meet together, the other habit is you don't meet together. They're both habits. We can't grow in Christ if we're not regularly meeting with God's people. This is, this is not me as a pastor trying to guilt anyone. And frankly, and if you're with us online, not at all addressing the relative level of risk that any of us have with relation to COVID. I would certainly want to treat that seriously. But it is a habit. People who profess faith in Christ and without good reason miss weeks or months but never pause to think what this could mean for them. You see, gathering weekly with God's people is an essential ingredient of the Christian life. I mean, God puts it with drawing near to God, with holding fast to the gospel, gathering with the church. Like, these are the habits that help us grow in Christ. So how do we stay close to God? How do we hold to the gospel? We meet together to encourage one another. So this is a two-step process. We meet and we encourage. We meet and we encourage. Now, we all walked in here this morning with an attitude or a perspective. Some of us are empty. We need to be filled up. But if we walk into the service every week, and our question is, what am I getting? Ultimately, we're missing what God is calling us to give. Because what this passage says is we are to encourage one another now that is my task but it's more properly our task Amen. it doesn't belong to one or a few god calls us all to encourage one another to love and good works and if we walk in seeking but never giving we're missing out on one of the great blessings of what it means to be a christian because one of the things that's amazing about this is if you encourage others The remarkable thing is, God's Spirit through that will encourage you. What's a way that you can encourage someone with the Word of God? And who might God be calling you to invest in? Well, why is this so important? Do this as you see the day drawing near. Jesus is coming back we will see Jesus as his loving children, or we will meet him as judge. So brothers and sisters, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another as that day draws near. So let's take a moment now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now. Well, God, I thank you that in Christ, we can confidently come into your throne room. That we have the best advocate. But God, I pray too, as your children, that you will help us obediently respond to your grace. Cling to the gospel, cling to Christ, and encourage each other by gathering together. Lord, these things aren't magic tokens. They're just the means by which you've given us to walk with Christ. Lord, I pray for those who are unable to be here and long to be here, I pray that you would encourage them. It can be such a discouraging thing to want these things and feel like you can't live them out. So God, I pray that your spirit would minister grace and encouragement to them. And Lord, I pray that in Christ, you will help us walk faithfully to the end, looking to Jesus, the founder and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross despise the shame, and is now, even now, at your right hand, pleading for us. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.